You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. As you're doing that, I'll go ahead and dismiss middle school class. Middle school class meets down those stairs uh, every Sunday after worship. So if you're a middle schooler, feel free to make your way down the stairs over there for class. Um, Everyone who's staying in here, we invite you to please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We'll be continuing our series in Exodus this morning, which is called Be Set Free. Um, Before we get into that, though, I, I do have a couple announcements I'd like to make. By the way, if you need a Bible, go ahead and uh, put your hand up in the air. We'll make sure one of our ushers gets you a Bible so you can follow along. We like to go verse by verse through the, through the Word. Uh, the other thing I was going to say, if you, have a, if you like to fo- read the Bible on your phone, we encourage you to use the YouVersion uh, Bible app, and in there you can even find live notes. If you go into the menu and look at live notes, live events, you can follow along in there with us. So I've got a couple announcements for you. One of these is that uh, you know, we have this internal kind of community website called The City, which is for people who are part of our church. If you're not part of that, we encourage you to get on there because we share a lot of good information on there. Like, for example, just this last week, we posted the dates for our uh, upcoming mission trips. We know that people need to take time off uh, if they're going to go on something like that. And so we encourage you to pray about going on a mission trip this year. We have three mission trips we want you to know about that we're planning tentatively. It kind of depends on uh, how many people join the teams. But right now, we're planning three First of them is going to be in March, and that trip is going to work in uh, Southeast Europe in the Balkan area uh, with refugees. So you probably heard a lot on the news about refugees coming into Greece and up through uh, into Serbia and Hungary and then into the West. Uh, we have a lot of contacts over there, missionary contacts, and you know, there's just an amazing open door right now. These people, a lot of them live in countries where they're not even legally really allowed to have gospel materials or Bibles or talk about Jesus or hear about Jesus. And so when they come into Western countries, they're able to hear about Jesus for the first time. And so we want, as Christians, to be on the front end of making sure that that happens. And so we want to partner with some ministries and be uh, feet on the ground. You know, the fact that we speak English is a huge uh, factor that we can go over there and we can minister to refugees. So that's going to be happening in March, probably the third week of March. And we're going to have some people at the back table afterwards who will have much more information than I'm giving you right now. I'm just telling you some basic info, and then I want anybody who's interested, even remotely, to go to the back table after church and talk to these people who are leading these trips. The second trip is going to be in June. And uh, last year, uh, James Reinhardt, who's playing drums today, he led a trip to uh, Haiti. And this year, he's going to be leading it again. We have an ongoing relationship with a ministry in Haiti, just north of Port-au-Prince, and um, they're, what they have there is they're working with orphans and kids who have grown out of orphanages. They're uh, also helping local kids get into schools. They have a medical outreach, so if anyone has medical experience, we'd like you to consider going on this trip. So it's a medical outreach and a work project. If you have two hands, you can also be used on this trip, and, um, or even one hand. If you only have one hand, I don't want to discriminate against people with only one hand, so you could probably be used on this trip as well. Uh, Also, thirdly, in July, we're going to be taking a trip again to Hungary and Romania. We have an ongoing ministry there to work with youth, and what we do is uh, these are youth from all the local high schools, and we organize a summer camp with them. 
where we teach them English and we share our lives with them. It's been an awesome vehicle over the years for sharing the gospel. We've seen a lot of kids come to know God through this outreach over the years. And so if that's something you're interested in as well, check out in the back. We'll have some people doing some announcements. Other thing I wanted to let you know about is that um, we have created an update to our fundraising vision. So in August of last year, we came out with a fundraising vision because we have a vision to see our church go forward. You know, one of our themes for this year is forward to what lies ahead, and we think about that, first of all, in, in individual terms, that we want you to pray about, God, what's the next step for me to take in my walk with you as a Christian? But we also want to move forward as a church. What is the next step for us as a church? So one of the things that we've thought about for a long time is that we would really like to put down some roots in the city and we would like to have uh, our own facility, which we think would also do a lot of things. In fact, we've got a whole page of reasons why we believe that it would be beneficial for us as a church to have our own place. So I wanted to let you know this as well. This, uh, so uh, six days ago on Monday, we put an uh, offer, so preliminary offer, on a building here in town. So that's exciting. Um, this is the first time we've been able to go that far. So whether they take our offer or not, there's another offer on this building right now, so it's a good time to pray that if this is God's will, that he would open that door and he would move the uh, hearts and minds of the owners to take our offer. So it's a, it's, a, it's a great time. You know, we put together this fundraising vision because to buy a building, you also have to have a down payment. So we were trying to raise the down payment, and we haven't reached our goal, but we have gotten far enough along uh, that we're able to start looking around and start making a couple offers. So we've done that. But I'd like you to just, if you're interested in this, we have a bunch of copies on the back table and one of those stand-up things there. And you can just take this and see what our vision is because it's more than just a building. We have, uh, that building is only really one step in our vision. This covers over about 10 years of just kind of big picture stuff that we could see God doing with our church in the future. And, uh, and what steps need to be taken in order to get there. So I encourage you to pick one of these up at the back table and uh, partner with us. So let's go ahead and pray as we open God's word. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. You're a God who is living. You're a God who is active. And thank you, Lord, for your word that you are faithful. That whenever we open it, Lord, you speak to us a living word which speaks to us individually and us corporately. And we ask that this morning, Lord, we would hear that word and that we would truly let it sink deep into us, that it would be like seeds that go into soil, and that, Lord, you would water that soil, and that you would cause it to create and grow up into so much good fruit in our lives for our benefit, for your glory, and for the benefit of those around us. So, Lord, we ask that you give us ears to hear what your word says today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, I'm going to read our text this morning to begin. Our text comes from Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord and said, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. 
And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is God's word. So recently I took a trip to England with my family. And uh, while we were there, one of the places we stayed was in Oxford. We had some friends that we were able to stay with there. And Oxford is really probably my favorite city in that whole area. It's an amazing city. It's known as the City of Dreaming Spires. And the whole center of the city is made up of 39 colleges, which together form Oxford University. And the campuses of these colleges are amazing, right? They're like these old, ornate buildings. They have parks. There are lakes and rivers, even islands on the campuses of these um, of these colleges that are part of Oxford University. Some of them have herds of deer on them, you know, in the middle of the city. It's, it's very cool. And one of the places I was most excited to visit was Maudlin College, which is where C.S. Lewis used to teach. And on the campus of Maudlin College, there's a mile-long footpath that goes around an island which is created in the river, and that footpath is called Addison's Walk. And it was on Addison's Walk, on this footpath, where C.S. Lewis said that he had a conversation with his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, who's the author of The Lord of the Rings. Uh, And C.S. Lewis said that that conversation on that path was what led to him turning away from atheism and becoming a Christian. And so one of the things that I did when I was in England, I took my kids and we walked down that same path and we had that same conversation that C.S. Lewis had with his friend J.R.R. Tolkien. And, and I talked to my kids about what that conversation was and how it led to C.S. Lewis becoming a Christian and coming to faith in Jesus. It was a conversation. The conversation they had was one about stories. And it was about why it is that we love the kinds of stories that we love. You see, before they were famous authors, Tolkien and Lewis were colleagues at Oxford University. And one night after dinner... They went for a walk, and as they were walking, they got to talking about the power of stories, as they were both authors and interested in this topic. Tolkien had written a a book on this subject about stories and why it is that people love stories, and his premise was this, that there are certain kinds of stories out there that people cannot get enough of, no matter how many times they read them. You know, stories, for example, that depict a supernatural world. Even though we live in an age of science and reasons, for some reason, people still want stories that tell us about a supernatural world. Stories, for example, that depict being able to escape death and being able to escape aging and time. Stories about love that is eternal, love without parting, love that overcomes death, love that absolutely destroys death. Stories of good overcoming evil. We love stories about missions to save the world, you know, missions to save humanity from the brink of destruction. We, we love stories about victory snatched from the jaws of defeat, or stories of heroes who sacrifice themselves to save others. You think about this, all the best stories have these themes. When you watch a movie and it moves you even to tears, it's usually because of one of these themes. Now, why is that? Why is it that all the best stories have these same themes, And yet we can't get enough of these themes. We want them more and more. We pay money to watch these movies again and again and read these books over and over. We can't get enough of it. So why is that? According to Tolkien, it was because he said these themes reveal the deep human longings. And what Tolkien believed was that the reason that all human beings share these same longings and are moved by these same themes is because they reflect the way that we believe that things should be. 
the way that things should be, even if it's not how they are right now, it's still how we believe deep down. All people believe that things should be. Because he would say, we were made in the image of God, and yet we're fallen. But yet, because we're made in the image of God, we have this kind of ancestral memory, this kind of fuzzy memory of, of the way that things are supposed to be. And that's why, even though we all know what reality is, right, that the reality is that one day all of us will die, that we will one day have to say goodbye to those that we love, that good doesn't always win. Sometimes evil wins the day. And yet still deep down inside, we look at this and we say, even if that's how it is, that's not how it's supposed to be. I know it's not how it's supposed to be. We shouldn't have to say goodbye to the ones we love. Good should triumph over evil. There must be something more than just this physical, temporal world. There must be. And the reason that we love these stories is because they show us that kind of world, the kind of world that we believe should exist. They show us those kinds of things. So C.S. Lewis was compelled by this idea. He himself felt the power of stories, yet he was an atheist. And Tolkien, what he told him that day on Addison's Walk as they walked together along the river, he said, I want you to do this. I want you to consider the story of Jesus. And here's why. Because in the gospel, you have every single one of those things that moves you about a story. Every single one of those themes that people long for in a story. They're all there. They're all there in the gospel. You have escape from death. You have uh, love that conquers death. You have good defeating evil. You have heroic self-sacrifice. And when everything looks the darkest, victory out of defeat, triumph out of defeat, life out of death, everything you want in a story, it's all found in the gospel. And C.S. Lewis said, yeah, yeah, I can see that. But Tolkien told him, but here's the difference. He said the gospel story of Jesus is not just one more wonderful story that points to those themes, but the story of Jesus in the gospel is the underlying reality to which all the stories point. In other words, the reason that we love the stories that we love, stories of world-saving missions and, and heroes who sacrifice themselves to save others, is because the story of the gospel, in a way, is, is hardwired into us. It's written on our hearts so that when we come in contact with it, something is triggered within us. The gospel story of Jesus is not just one more story pointing to an underlying reality. Rather, Jesus is the underlying reality to which all the other stories point. Now keep that in mind today as we, as we go through this text and talk about this story of how God provided water from a rock for the people of Israel while they were in the wilderness. There are two things that I'd like to point out to you from this text today. Number one, I'd like to talk to you about the patience of God. And secondly, I'd like to talk to you about the rock of God. So the patience of God and the rock of God. Let's begin by talking about the patience of God. Here in the book of Exodus, we've been looking at what the word salvation means. And what we've seen is that salvation means to be set free, to be set free from bondage. And just as God set the people of Israel free from literal slavery, God sets us free through Jesus from the things that we are enslaved to, the things that we're in bondage to. Because what happens is we build our lives, we build our hopes, we build our identities on things other than God, and then those things enslave us. And then God sets us free from those things in Jesus. Another thing, though, that Exodus shows us about salvation is that while on the one hand, salvation is something that can happen in a moment, it happens in an instant, yet on the other hand, salvation is 
a process. There, there's an aspect of it that is a process. For example, you can take a person out of slavery in a moment, right? Like one moment they're a slave, then you take them out. The next moment they're no longer a slave. They've been set free. Yet to take the slavery out of that person's mind, out of their heart, that takes a process. You know, my wife is originally from California, but she hasn't lived there for a long time. But she would tell you still, you know, you can take the girl out of California, but you can't take the California out of the girl, right? And so here in Exodus, you have a similar thing. These people have been living in Egypt as slaves for so long. And it's one thing to take the slaves out of Egypt. It's another thing to take Egypt out of the people. So when God brought the people out of Egypt, notice this, what we've been seeing here in our text, they don't go straight from Egypt to the promised land, but they go on this journey. God takes them, and he says, follow me, I'm going to take you somewhere else. And the first place he's going to take them is to a mountain called Mount Sinai. Actually, this is our last chapter today before they arrive at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is a place where they are going to sit at the base of this mountain for a long time, actually. I mean, really, for the end of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and half of Numbers. They're there for a long time. They sit at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God gives them his word. He talks to them about what it means to live as free people in every area of their life, from worship to to money to relationships and things like that. But here's the thing. In order to get to Mount Sinai, you have to walk through the desert, You have to walk through the desert, right? So getting the people out of Egypt happened in a moment. But getting Egypt out of the people took a process. And for us as Christians to be set free in Christ, that's something that can happen in a moment. But in order for that freedom to work its way into your life practically and get worked out in your character, that takes a process, a process of learning and a process of applying. And so the people are here in the desert because God has led them out here to teach them some things that you can only learn in a place like this. Because in the desert, right, all your resources, there's no resources. Everything you have, you have to depend on God for. So God has brought them out to this place in order to teach them reliance upon Him rather than reliance upon themselves. God saved these people from oppression and slavery. You read earlier in the book that the people cried out, they sighed, they cried out to God, and they asked God to save them. And so God led them out, and he, the whole nation crossed through the Red Sea, and they left Egypt. And when they left, you might remember, we just looked at it a couple weeks ago, they were elated. They were excited. They praised God. They, they worshiped. They thanked God for hearing their cries and answering their prayers and setting them free from that terrible situation that they had been in. But here's the thing. Once they were done singing and celebrating, well, it didn't take very long for them to come to the uh, difficult reality that they were now in, like to realize uh, what kind of situation they were in, for that reality to set in and for them to realize, although it's good to be free and to not be slaves anymore, now we have a whole new set of problems on our hands, right? Like in Egypt, they were slaves and they were oppressed and they hated it, but they never had to worry about where their next meal was going to come from. And they never had to worry about whether or not they would have any water to drink. But now, here they are, and they're free, and that's great and all, but now they've got two million people, and they're out in the middle of the desert, and they've got no shelter, and they've got no source of food or water whatsoever, and this is a tough spot to be in. And it's kind of like, well, you got your wish, but now you've got a whole new set of challenges which you hadn't even thought about before. And how, how many times is that true of us in our lives? How many of you have experienced that? 
You want something so bad and you pray for it and you ask God for it and you hope for it and then you get it. And well, it's, it's nice and all, but it brings with it a whole new set of problems, a whole new set of challenges that maybe you hadn't expected before. Like, oh, only if I, if I were only married, then my life would be complete. You know what's missing in my life? I need to get married. Then my life would be complete. And then you get married. And then it solves a couple of problems. But it, it doesn't it just create a whole new set of challenges. Oh, if, if only I could have a child. That's what's missing. I need to have a child. Then my life would be complete. That is what I need. And kids are great. But you'd be naive to think that having a kid didn't also bring with it a whole new set of challenges that you didn't have before and a new set of even difficulties. Oh, if only I could get that promotion. Oh, if I could get the raise. If I could get the new position with that company. And then you get it. And yeah, the money's nice and all, but there's a lot of other stuff that comes along with that job and it makes you wonder, was this even worth it? You see, that's the kind of situation that Moses and the children of Israel are in. Except for them, it's actually a matter of life and death, right? Like you can go for a few days without food and be fine, but going without water for only a few days and you're done, you die. And it's not only is it death, but it's an incredibly painful death. And so we read that the people of Israel began to quarrel with Moses. Now that word quarrel is very important to our text. In fact, you can tell that because later on they name this place after the quarrel, right? It's the key word that characterizes the event. In verse 7, the last verse of the section we read, it says, it was named this because this is the place where the people of Israel quarreled against God. Now, we've already seen the people grumble. We've seen them complain. But this is something different. Quarreling, you see, the Hebrew word that's translated quarrel, it, one of its meanings is to bring a charge, meaning to bring a formal, legal, criminal charge against a person. It's to accuse someone of committing a crime. It's to bring legal action against them. You see, here's the thing. The people of Israel were accusing Moses of criminal negligence and basically manslaughter before the fact because he's brought them out to this place where unless something happens soon, they're all going to die. And so they charge Moses with a crime. And you can see the legal nature of this, actually, if you look at verse 4, where Moses cries out to God and he's like, God, what can I do? And what does he say? These people are about to stone me. Now, do you know what stoning was? Stoning was execution, right? This was a, a legal thing, like somebody commits a crime. This is corporal punishment. Execution, they're stoning someone who's been found guilty of committing a crime, a capital offense. So what we have here is that the people of Israel are charging Moses with committing a crime against them, and they have determined already that he's guilty, and they're about to execute him. Now, this charge is brought against Moses, but think about this. Even Moses alludes to this. Who are these people ultimately upset with? In verse 2, Moses himself uh, uh, alludes to this. He says, why are you quarreling with me? Like, why are you upset with me? Why are you accusing me? I'm just following instructions. If you really want to be upset with somebody, you guys are ultimately really upset with God because he's the one who brought us out here. Don't forget that. He said, God's the one you're really upset with. He's the one, ultimately, that you are accusing of criminal negligence, of criminal neglect. He's the one you're accusing of committing wrongdoing against you. And so in verse 4, Moses cries out to God and says, God, what am I supposed to do? These people are about to stone me. What do I do with these people? 
In other words, Moses is fed up, right? Like you ever say that, like, I don't know, about work or about your kids? What am I supposed to do, right? That, that's when your patience has run out. He's got no more patience for these people. But here's what God says. Check it out. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do to these people, these ungrateful people who are ready to kill you, who are treating you unfairly. Here's what we're going to do to them. I'm going to give them water. I'm going to give them what they need. I'm going to refresh them, and I'm going to provide for them. Now, what these people are doing is totally unfair to Moses. It's even, though, beyond that, beyond being unfair, this is blasphemous, and I'll tell you why. Because what they're saying is that God has sinned against us. God has done wrong against us. God has not done right. God is wrong. And so here we have created beings calling God out, calling into question the infinite, omnipotent creator who sustains their very lives and gives them everything that they have and everything that they need. Now, what would you expect God's response to be to blasphemy, to this kind of attitude that these people have? He would probably say, right, you insolent, ungrateful little creatures, how dare you do this to Moses? How dare you speak this way about me? You better watch out and repent or else I'm going to squash you. But yet that's not what God says. Instead, he says, rather than pouring out judgment upon you, I'm going to pour out grace. I'm going to pour out water. I'm going to give you water, even though you probably deserve judgment. You know, there's an old English word for patience. It's used, you know, if any of you read the old King James Version of the Bible, you find this word a lot. It's the word long-suffering. It's a very descriptive word, like to suffer long. In the old King James Bible, it even says, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where you get the description of what is love, one of the descriptions says this, love is long-suffering. Love is long-suffering. Throughout the Bible, God says, describes himself as a God who is long-suffering. And what long-suffering means is that in spite of our sins, in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our failures, God doesn't give up on us, much rather he continues to serve us and to meet our needs. And so here's Moses, and he's fed up, right? He's at the end of his patience. And I don't know about you, but I probably would be too if these people blamed me and and wanted to kill me every time anything went wrong. Moses' patience is gone, but God's is not. You know, if you read through the books of the Bible, especially the early Old Testament books like Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, think about particularly the book of Judges, what you see, you see uh, it covers hundreds of years of history in just a very short amount of pages. And because of that, you know, we get this very condensed history. So we get this just overview of what happened with a couple highlights. And what pops out at you, jumps off the page when you read these books because of the way they're written, what jumps off the page is God's incredible patience towards his people. Because over and over you see the same cycle, it keeps reoccurring. The people get into some kind of terrible situation and then they cry out to God and then God intervenes and saves them or gives them what they need, right? Sometimes it's food. Sometimes it's water and so God provides for them food and water. Sometimes they're under attack or they're being oppressed and they cry out to God to save them and God always shows up and always provides and always defends them and always sets them free. Every single time. God always sets them free. And when you read that, it just becomes clear. It's like chapter after chapter. Okay, what problem are they going to get in this time? And they're going to call it to God. And then God's going to set them free. But yet, here's the thing, though. You know what else always happens every single time? Every time they face a problem, what do they do? They say, you can't count on God. You can never count on God. This God, you can't trust in him. He's never around when you need him. Man, you don't just, 
He's just totally abandoned us. They do this every single time, and then they get saved, and then the next time they have a problem, what do they do? Oh, you can't trust God. You know, he's just never around when you need him. He always lets us down. And when you read that, from our perspective, it's kind of frustrating, right? Because you look at this, you just want to reach into the pages and just, you know, kind of strangle them a little and say, you know, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? Are you not seeing what I'm seeing? Like every single time, God has been there for you. In fact, he's even faithful to you when you're not faithful to him. He's never let you down. Why don't you trust him? Like why, why don't you have any confidence at all that God is going to be with you and help you when you face these tough situations? Because that would seem like the reasonable conclusion to come to. Yet in spite of everything that God does for them, God is constantly doubted by them and constantly mistrusted by them. And yet, he comes through for them every single time. It's the incredible patience of God that we see throughout the pages of the Bible. And here again, instead, in our story today, instead of trusting in God and turning to him for help and direction, they go even one step further than complaining. They go to blaming. They go to blaming God. They accuse him of wrongdoing, of of sinning against them, basically. And from our vantage point, we can see that God is incredibly faithful and God is incredibly patient. But you probably know this. You know, when you're in the story rather than reading the story, it's a different perspective, isn't it? When it's your story and you don't know how it's going to end and you're living in it, when you're in the middle of the crisis, it often feels like God's help in the past was way long time ago. And this situation is clearly different than all those situations. I mean, clearly this is not the same, you tend to think to yourselves. And what happens is you lose sight of the big picture. I heard one author, and he put it this way. I thought this was interesting. He said, you know, to read the book of Exodus, it's kind of like when you walk into a room and you see a portrait on the far wall. So you go over to look at the portrait, and you see, oh, it's a portrait of a person. And you say, wow, that is an ugly person. And then you realize that it's actually a mirror that you're looking at. And that's kind of what Exodus is like. That what it shows us is ourselves. It just shows us our own human tendencies. And what this book is encouraging us to do is to do this. Just as we look at this and we say, man, if they could only see the big picture, they wouldn't respond this way. They would trust God. They would, they would praise him for his patience. They would turn to him anytime there was a problem because look at the big picture. He's been so faithful. You see, what these books are encouraging us to do with our lives is to do exactly what we think that they need to do. is to say, take a step back and say, look at God's faithfulness. Look at how faithful he has been to me. Look at how everything that I have is from him. He's provided for me. He's cared for me. He's heard my prayers. So why wouldn't I trust in him? You know, you you wonder, you look at these people and you say, how can these people accuse God of not caring for them? How can they accuse God of not loving them after everything else that's come before? How he's seen them all do so many amazing things for them. How can they accuse God of criminal negligence? How can they stand in judgment over God? But haven't we sometimes done the same thing? Have you ever accused God of not doing right by you because something didn't go the way that you wanted it to or hoped that it would? If you would do what you clearly know that they need to do when you're facing situations like this, which is step back and remember God's faithfulness to you and his promises to you, and see your present circumstances in light of who he is and what he's done in the past and what he's promised to do, and you would be able to face whatever situations life throws at you 
with tremendous confidence and with so much faith. So what does God do to these people who are blasphemously accusing him of wrongdoing, who have turned against Moses and who are about to execute him? Well, not only does he provide for them, but he provides for them in a very interesting way. He provides for them water out of a rock, and not just any rock, but from the top of a large rock. That's pretty much the most unlikely place that you're going to find water in the desert. And in that, there's a message for us, and that's this, that God's grace often flows from the hardest places. God's grace often flows from the most unlikely places. And here in the desert, really, that's what the point of a desert. You have no choice but to depend on God for everything that you have, everything that you need. And there are some lessons which you can only learn in the desert places of life. When your options dry up, and when there's no other option but to rely fully on God. You know, the saying goes, you'll never discover that God is all you need until God is all you have. But notice what God tells Moses to take with him up to this rock. He tells him to take two things. First of all, he tells him to take with him the rod, the staff with which he struck the Nile. Uh, the staff was an instrument that God had used to bring judgment against Israel. So the staff is a, is a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol of God's authority in Moses' life. The second thing he tells them to bring are the elders of Israel. Now the elders represent what? They're the judicial committee. They're the ones who are going to make the judgment. Now remember, the people wanted to put Moses on trial. Ultimately, they want to put God on trial. This is what they want. They want legal proceedings. And now here comes Moses with what? A symbol of legal authority and a jury of the elders of Israel. Only, right, the people were bringing charges against Moses. They were standing in judgment over Moses, ultimately over God. But now Moses shows up and says, you want a trial? I'll give you a trial. He shows up with the rod of authority and and he's surrounded by the elders of Israel. Now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the people. You know what they're thinking, right? Like, here comes Moses with his staff asserting his authority and with the the elders of Israel. You know what these people are thinking? They're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, we went too far. Like, we we, uh, overplayed our hand, right? Like, now Moses is coming, and he's going to put us on trial, and he's probably going to find us guilty of blasphemy and, and treason because of what we did and what we said. When they saw Moses coming with the rod in his hand and the elders of Israel, they must have thought, oh no, we're done. He's coming for us. We're in trouble. But then what happens? Moses says he passed in front of the people. He passed the people by. He did something they never expected. He passed them by. Rather than judging them and striking them with the staff, he climbs up on this big rock and he strikes the rock with his staff. And as a result, water flows out to the people from an unlikely place, and instead of judgment, God gives them grace. It's an amazing story, right? But there's actually more. It gets, it gets even better. And that's the second part of this study, which is the story of the rock. You know, one of the most amazing things about the Bible is that although it was written by 40 different people over the course of 1,700 years on three continents, most of these people didn't know each other. Some of them wrote in different languages, yet All of the books of the Bible come together and they tell one cohesive story. And what's even more impressive than that is that there are certain themes, which even though they're written by different people at different times, these themes run throughout the entire Bible. Themes, metaphors, pictures that appear throughout the Bible in all the different books from beginning 
all the way to the end. We've looked at some of these before. We looked at the story of the lamb recently. Well, this is the story of the rock. One of those themes is the theme of the rock. What we have here in Exodus chapter 17, you could say, is the first chapter in the Bible-long story of the rock. Now, what's this story about? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul the Apostle tells us that the rock, the story of the rock is the story of Jesus. He says the rock is Christ. In fact, it's not only Paul who tells us that. Jesus himself says that same thing in numerous places. So let me take you on a quick journey through the Bible and we'll look at some of the chapters in this story of the rock. And you'll see the significance of Moses striking the rock with the rod of judgment and water flowing forth. So if you'd like to, you can turn there with me. Uh, I'm going to turn to 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 6. We'll also have it up here on the screen. Now in 1 Kings chapter 6, here's what's going on. We read about the building of the temple in the time of Solomon, king of Israel. Now up until that point, the people had been worshiping in a tent called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was built. It's going to be built at the end of the book of Exodus. And then for 500 years, as the people wander through the desert, they're going to worship God in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is kind of like a, a mobile, portable church. They would set up, and when they uh, camp somewhere, they would set up, they would worship, and then when it was time to move on to the next place, they'd tear it down, and they'd set it up in the next place. So for 500 years, they worshiped God in this thing called the tabernacle, this tent. But now the Israelites have settled in the land of uh, the promised land, land of Canaan, and they have a capital city, which is Jerusalem. So here's what we read in 1 Kings chapter 6. In the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, he began to build the house of the Lord. When this house was built, it was with stones prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house when it was being built. So the temple was built out of these massive stones which were prepared and cut at the quarry and then brought to the assembly site. And they were cut so precisely that the stones only had to be fit into place. Tradition says that they didn't even use mortar at all. They just had cut these stones in such a way that they could just stack them all up together and make it fit together. So in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that as Christians, he says, you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. And check this out. He says, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul is referring back to the building of the temple in the time of Solomon, and he's saying now God is building a new temple. He's building us, his people. He's building a church into a community of disciples, and that is his true dwelling place. But now, notice what Paul the Apostle says. He says, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation stone, upon which the whole thing is built. It's Jesus. We read an interesting thing about the cornerstone in Psalm 118. Here's what it says in Psalm 118, verse 22. It says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Interesting enough, I guess, right? Kind of, kind of obscure verse, but here's what I want you to know about this verse. This is the number one most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. So when the New Testament samples from the Old Testament, this is the verse that is quoted more often than any other Old Testament verse. Why? It's kind of a weird verse to be quoting over and over, right? Why? Well, check this out. Tradition says that during the building of the temple, when they would bring these giant stones, as we've been talking about, 
that were prepared at the quarry. They bring them to this site where they were assembling the temple, and they started doing that. Tradition says that they found this stone that didn't fit, kind of like when you buy something from Ikea, and you assemble it, and then you've got like a bunch of pieces of stuff left over, and you're like, well, I don't know where these are, what these are for. I guess they're just extras. And so what do you do with the extra parts from Ikea? Well, you throw them out, and that's what they did with this stone. The builders assumed that this stone must have just been extra parts, or it must have been cut weird. It didn't fit with the rest of the pieces, and so they rolled it down the hill. You know, Jerusalem sits on a hill, and there's a creek that flows at the bottom of the hill called the Kidron And so they rolled this stone down the hill into the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley, historically, uh, was a place where also the people of Jerusalem would take their trash, and they would burn their trash in the Kidron Valley. And so really, uh, ultimately, what's happened here is that the people took this stone, and they threw it into the trash. That's the tradition. And that tradition is what is being talked about in Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That still leaves the question, why is this the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament? Fast forward with me again to the Gospel of Luke. Here's Jesus talking to the Pharisees, Luke chapter 20, and Jesus says, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then he adds something. Everyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter them like dust. Over and over, Jesus, the other New Testament writers, they apply that verse from Psalm 118, verse 22. They apply it to Jesus. They say that story is the story of Jesus. He's the cornerstone, and yet he was rejected by men. He's the foundation upon which everything stands or falls, and yet he was rejected by men. But did you catch that extra phrase, that cryptic phrase that Jesus added on there? Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter them, shatter them like dust. What does that mean? It means this. If you will come to Jesus, by necessity, you will be broken. You see, because the message of the gospel is this. You cannot save yourself. and You're you're too lost for saving, and you must admit that the In order to be saved, it's only in admitting that you cannot save yourself. It's only in admitting that you need forgiveness and salvation that you will be saved. So if you come to Jesus, you have to be, if you fall upon him, you will be broken to pieces in humility. But the alternative is this. If you're not broken before Jesus in humility, then you will be broken by him in judgment. You will be scattered like dust in judgment. Now come with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. In John, chapter 7, Jesus has gone down to Jerusalem for one of their annual feasts. You know, the Jewish calendar had several annual feasts which they would, uh, they would uh, observe every year. And the feast that Jesus has gone down for is the Feast of Tabernacles. So uh, in verse 37 of John, chapter 7, it says this. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up. So the feast that's being mentioned here it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if I was living at that time, the Feast of Tabernacles would be my absolute favorite feast of the year because here's what the Feast of Tabernacles is about. People from all over Israel would come with their families and their kids and they would come to Jerusalem and they would live in tents. And the purpose of living in tents, it was to remember all the years that their ancestors had lived in the desert and had lived in tents before they settled in the land of Canaan. And it was a remembrance of how God had taken care of their ancestors in the desert, which is actually what we're reading about in Exodus, isn't it? So once again, 
On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he said, If anyone thirsts, now keep Exodus in mind while you're doing this, right? What was the problem the people had? They were thirsty. So the Feast of Tabernacles was in remembrance of the time they spent in the desert after they came out of Egypt in the time of Moses. And their big logistical problem at the time was they needed water. And so during the feast each day, what they would do uh, by the time of Jesus uh, is that they would take water and they would pour it out on the ground in remembrance of how the people had been thirsty in a dry and barren land that God had provided for them over and over again. And so it's at this point when they would pour the water on the dry ground and the people would remember that they were thirsty. On the last day, the great day of the festival, Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is saying, hey guys, remember that time in Exodus chapter 17 when God provided for the people water out of the rock to quench their thirst? I am that rock. That rock is me. Just as Moses struck the rock in the wilderness and out of that rock flowed life-giving water in the same way, Jesus would be struck. He would be smitten with the rod of God's judgment even though we were the ones who deserved it. He was beaten. He was crucified. And He has become the wellspring of life. He is the rock. In the book of Deuteronomy, throughout the Psalms, God is referred to as the rock. So what we have here in Exodus 17 is an extremely symbolic thing. Moses taking the rod of judgment, and rather than striking the people who deserve the judgment, God tells him to pass the people by and rather strike the rock. The rock representing God, this picture, is that even though it's the people who have done wrong, God orders himself to be struck with the rod of judgment. And as a, as a result of that, grace and life come bursting forth for the people who otherwise would have perished. This water, which not only saved their lives, but brought refreshment and joy to them. Now, do you remember what J.R.R. Tolkien said to C.S. Lewis? He said, Jesus is the underlying reality to which all the stories point. See, the message of the gospel is this, that God loves you so much that he ordered the rod of his judgment to fall upon Jesus so that you could be spared that judgment, but beyond that, so that you could have water that leads to life and live and quenches the deepest thirst in your soul so that you could experience refreshment and joy in him. But here's the catch, okay? There's the catch. When the rock was smitten and the water poured forth, That water didn't do you any good unless you took it and you drank it. And the same is true with the salvation that God provides for us in Jesus. You have to receive it. You have to take it in for yourself. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you come to him and drink, not only will you be saved, but you will be refreshed by the living water that gives refreshment and beyond just being refreshed yourself, it will overflow out of you and out of your life and it will touch others around you. What do you have to do to have that kind of abundant, overflowing life? Jesus said it. He said, come to me and drink. At the end of the Bible, the very last kind of message we're given at the end of the Bible is this. The spirit and the bride say, come. And whoever hears, come. And let him who thirsts, come. And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. I want to invite you to accept that invitation today.
wherever you're at in your walk, maybe you, you already call yourself a Christian, maybe you say, you know what, I don't even call myself a Christian. I want to invite you to receive that invitation and to come to Jesus, the rock smitten for you, the one who received the rod of God's judgment so that it could pass you by and to receive that everlasting life that he offers you by his grace. I invite you to cast yourself upon him, to humble yourself before him, to build your life upon him and make him the cornerstone of your life. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the cornerstone and uh, Lord, though you've been rejected by some, Lord, we want to acknowledge that you are the cornerstone. You are the one upon whom everything stands or falls. And so, Lord, may we be those who cast ourselves upon you in humility. Lord, we thank you that you are the rock that was smitten for us. You are the source of life-giving water that gives eternal life. And Lord, I pray for every one of us here today that we would have, Lord, that water in our lives, that we would receive it from you today, that we would come to you and we would drink deeply of the water of life. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.